Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. With me today is my co-host, good friend, and a damn good pilot, Gabe. Hey, Tim. Uh, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's a shame Joel couldn't be here. Yeah. He, um, you know, he looked into the crystal skull and uh, he went a little bit crazy. So he's he's down in South America recovering, but hopefully he'll be back soon. It'll be fine. He'll treat it like a spa day. He'll be back even better than ever. Today, we are also joined by our buddy Alex. Not the same Alex as the one from the Terminator and James Bond episodes. Gabe and I just happen to know a lot of people named Alex. Alex, you're the one we're happy to have today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Gabe. I'm here. Yeah, I'm like, what, the fifth Alex on this show now? But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll try to make it work, and maybe I'll be a little bit better. So yeah, let's do it. But Alex, you're not a nuclear scientist. You're not a nuclear weapons expert. You're just a, a friend of ours who happens to be pretty good about uh, pop culture and has some good insights into this. I do listen to a lot of podcasts, so <laughs> I'm hoping that this will translate over to the mic. So. Well, I think this is a this is a good spot for you. This movie that we watched today. So this is part of our mini nuke series, and this is uh, episodes where there is a slice of pop culture that has some scenes, maybe a little bit about nuclear weapons, but it's not the whole thing. Not every episode can be three hours long. Let's have a little mini nuke episode, something fun, and we get into it that way. And the episode that we have today is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I think is fitting. The last full episode we did was on the James Bond movie Octopussy. And uh, as people that listen to that episode know Gabe's opinion about what it's like to have a, an action star that's maybe in the, the twilight of their career. Yeah, that's that's putting it mildly. Uh, but there's, I, I would say they're still kicking butt. We fighted, let's continue this series. Indiana Jones, he's in his 70s at this point, maybe late 60s, early 70s. Well, in the movie, he was 80. That's what uh, <laughs> yeah. Shia said. But it's a different time and place. It's a... Instead of World War II, it's in the 1950s. I think it's like 1957 when this film takes place. Uh, but the movie came out in 2008. I can't believe how old this movie is now. Like, I remember seeing this in the theater yes. opening night with a bunch of coworkers at a new job. They all got together, and we got so excited. We got lined up to get the best seats. We had all of our popcorn. Uh, we talked about it for weeks ahead of time. And then the movie kind of happened, and the opinions of this movie, I think, are fairly low when it came out. I'll say I'll say this for the end when we rate the film. It's a little bit higher on my on my level here. When, ten ten years later, aged. Yeah, aged it aged better. Okay. Well, and I think the like the sign is when they reboot all these movies. Usually, the reboot will be followed by like ten different reincarnations and sequels. This one just kind of that was it. There's no Indiana Jones since then, so that maybe is some indication. Well, hopefully, we can have another uh, Indiana Jones adventure. Indiana Jones and the something something maybe taking place later in the, the 70s or the 60s. Why well, aren't they planning one right now? I think there's supposed to be an Indiana Jones five. That's what out. that's yeah. what the rumor is. Yes, yeah, that's what I've heard. Because a couple of different people wrote. Uh, this movie, uh, you know, Indiana Jones usually has George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, the director, George Lucas, like an executive producer, writer. But this particular one had a bunch of big name writers help on it. Uh, Jeb Stewart, who wrote Die Hard and The Fugitive, pretty, pretty good movies. Uh, Jeffrey Bohm wrote The Dead Zone, which had some great scenes in there about nuke stuff. Uh, Jed Bartlett, Martin Sheen. Uh, starts a nuclear war. Frank Darabont, who directed my favorite movie, The Shawshank Redemption, he's has a little bit of a pen on this movie, but the final main writer uh, was David Coep, who wrote Jurassic Park, Mission Impossible, Spider-Man, and the upcoming 
fifth Indiana Jones movie in addition to this fourth one here. So they really had a dream team on this one. Uh, I think that was the idea, right? <laughs> I mean, it has a lot a of team. different people together. A lot of cooks. Too many, oh, maybe too many cooks. We'll see. Too many cooks. <laughs> so with critics, this movie... 77% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That's not bad. That's pretty I mean, good. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. That's certified fresh. But the audience rating, much lower, 53% on Rotten Tomatoes. Usually, these big blockbuster movies is reversed. The people who are the fans like it a lot more. Like this uh, Justice League movie, the people, the people that like it right. liked it. But the critics attacked it the way around here. So I saw this. I saw this recently for Star Trek Discovery, the the new Star Trek series, where it was a similar pattern where the critics rated it much higher than the viewers did. And I almost wonder if these very like cult status, you know, with a big following type movies, whether they they get so picked apart and the fans get super critical. Uh, yeah, fa- fanboys probably uh, get their. Their talons and well, as much as these fanboys hated the movie, it made 780 or so million worldwide. That's a pretty good call for this film. So let's find out what all the the fuss is about. Spoiler warning, as usual, we're gonna get into the plot of this film. You know, it's a mini nuke episode. The whole thing's not about nukes. If you want to, if you've seen this movie a thousand times, just skip ahead to where we hear, hear a little musical interlude that will separate our plot discussion from our nuclear discussion a little bit later on. So this movie stars Indiana Jones. We know Indiana Jones. This is the fourth of the Indiana Jones and the Something Something or whatever uh, series. We've seen him in the past. He's like a archaeologist uh, professor by day or part-time. And on the other side, he is a, a suave, resourceful, no problem using a weapon, shooting somebody kind of guy who goes on adventures, right? We've seen him uh, recover the lost uh, Ark of the Covenant, burned up a bunch of Nazis. Uh, then we see him trying to get the, the supposedly Jesus's chalice, the thing that was recovered in the Lost Crusades. And we find him. He, he finds it. He drinks from it. Uh, apparently, it gives him ability to survive forever with some, you know, he ages very well. Um, <laughs> Obviously. And, and then you also see him uh, in the Temple of Doom uh, survive, almost getting his heart ripped out and all that kind of stuff because he finds himself into some sort of crazy cult area. So he's gone on a number of adventures. Uh, we see him in the TV series as young Indiana Jones. So he's, he, he's done a lot of stuff. I guess he's the throwback to the old uh, stories that, that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas like, the old uh, pulp. Right. story of a guy in a fedora hat and a whip and he yeah. goes on adventures so indiana jones now is looking for the kingdom of the crystal skull let's get into it right now gabe alex you guys are kind of the movie people here why don't you lead us off how does this film start well so yeah you said that the movie's like set in 1957 and we're basically i think hit over the head with uh, a cinder block in the beginning that like there's this uh elvis i think uh, hound dog is playing and they're driving like these old cars and everyone looks like 1950s and so we're, we're reminded right away that we're in uh, 1957 it starts with this car chase where these young kids are having a, a race with some u.s army guys and uh, they eventually peel off the u.s army guys get to the secret facility and indiana jones a real it, it's revealed he was in the trunk of the car uh, he had been kidnapped and he gets taken out and we find out that these u.s US Army people are actually Russians. Russians are, on US yeah, soil? I know, I know. Once again, 1950s Cold War. Yeah, the villains in this movie, we've gone from uh, kind of playful Nazis to very stern Soviet. Yeah, it almost had the feel of a Bond villain a little bit. Hmm. Um, it, there's this woman uh, for the Russians who's 
She's like very much in the supernatural. Uh, yeah, Kate Blanchett, uh, and she carries a sword and <laughs> is wearing a jumpsuit with a hammer and sickle on the back. Which uh, so you know what country she's from. So. I, I, I kind of like Kate Blanchett in this movie. She's great. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible accent, but I think that that works very well. But I'll mention <laughs> I'll mention here. So as they turn into this place called Hangar Fifty One, which is a kind of a fun combination, a mashup of Area Fifty One and Hangar Eighteen places that people associate with the paranormal, some sort of mysterious UFO activity. Maybe that's a, a hint to start the movie out, maybe kind of what we're going to learn here. But as they turn into this place, you see a sign for something called Atomic Cafe, right? It looks like a burger joint right next to the gate, pretty much, to this place. Okay. I don't know why they did this. It's very close. You know, logistically, it makes not a lot of sense because it's really close to this secret military installation at the end of a long highway. Like where, where are their customers coming from? The customers have to go to the military base. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But it does have a little bit of uh, linkage to history. I don't know if it's on purpose or accidental. There's this place called Owl's, Owl, like the bird, Owl's Bar and Cafe in San Antonio, New Mexico, which is very close to Alamogordo, New Mexico, where they did the first atomic test, the Trinity test, the code name. Uh, and a lot of the customers for this place, it just got started in 1945, were Manhattan Project scientists in the military as well. They were there under the code of like, we're uh, surveyors. We're doing some kind of military project, but don't worry about it. But we're going to give you a lot of customers. So they got tired of the cafeteria food and started, uh, they were like, hey, we can make some bank on this. Let's uh, start much. this cafe in the middle of nowhere, deal with all these surveyors. You know, if, if the military, the people who are, that are running the project, know if there's one place that all the military people can go to, then you can have a little bit more security there right you know it's instead of them going all the way home it's the same idea with the pentagon where you have everything in one spot so the people don't have to go home yeah so this place uh is famous for their green chili burger it's still there today when i i have plans in the future to go to the trinity test site which is only open like once a year is it green chili because of uh, mars man (laughs) or plutonium yeah something something like that i don't think so i think it's just you know is it near roswell at all or Uh, it's in it's near i mean it's near alamogordo new mexico so it's in that general part of the state i wish i could say i knew more about new mexico geography the cool story that's connected to this for the trinity test was the guy who was the the owner of this the Mm -hmm. manager the owner the the fry cook uh frank (laughs) uh he was told very mysteriously by one of the patrons, hey, tomorrow morning, you might want to get up around 5.30 in the morning and just look, look, look outside. Just, just look outside, trust me. Get your kids and family, put them to sleep. <laughs> just go check this out. And that was the day no, of no the nuclear test. No questions asked. Yeah, no questions asked. It was the day of the nuclear test. <laughs> hmm. So this was one of the few people who was a civilian to actually see the first atomic test. I mean, they weren't close enough to see the mushroom cloud or anything, but they were close enough to see the lights in the sky hmm. brighten up at around 5.30. Nice tip. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. But hopefully they tipped him actual money too uh, during the thing, but that's right, not bad. Right, uh, That was July 16th, 1945. So I, I thought that was really cool. I don't know if that was in, on purpose, but the important thing is if we're going to start nitpicking things, that was in New Mexico, not Las Vegas, not near the Nevada test Uh-oh. site. We haven't even gotten the nuclear stuff. <laughs> All right, let's, 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 keep know, let's, let's keep let's going. Let's keep so going. So we're at Hangar 51. So we're, yeah, we're at Hangar 51. 
Indiana Jones gets taken out uh, along with this British guy. I forget. Do you guys remember his name? Mac. I, yeah, his name is Mac, but I don't remember him from any other movies. But they seem to have a history, so I don't know. Kate Blanchett's character Irina. Um, she she's. Uh, it's revealed that she's very much into a psychic uh, kind of pseudoscience things like that, and they want to. Apparently, there's something very special inside the facility, so they break in. Um, Indiana Jones agrees to cooperate with them, and he leads them to this crate that they. Sorry, I know this is super critical, but not only did he lead them, he's throwing metal around, but nothing else is moving. And then as soon as he throws gunpowder in the air, it like starts going everywhere. But yet still, no metal anywhere. And when they get into the crate, I don't know if you want to take this back over, Gabe. I'll just keep on going. But it's an alien that's like wrapped in this magnetic like iron shield uh, alien body. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they take the wooden part of the crate off, that's when all of this stuff like just starts flying everywhere onto it. I'm like, wow, that wood was doing a real good job of blocking that magnet. And Magnet's greatest enemy wood. <laughs> is wood, right. Yeah. And in the whole movie, this will be just a premise in the whole movie. Um, it'll just be end up, end up being, hey, there's a cloth on this, uh, but yet it's not magnetic. And then as soon as the cloth goes away, magnetic. And it's just there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of bad stuff like that. So they find this skull. Yeah. Um, as a viewer, you kind of get the idea that this is an alien thing, although they don't seem to really... Really, it's like the last 10 minutes of the movie that they finally go, they hold up this, this alien skull yeah, it... to this thing and go, I think this is an alien. Like, no, <laughs> yeah. no, I, I get it. Yeah, right. Yeah. We, we kind of got in the first few minutes. Yeah, you kind of showed an alien's hand, so let's not... Yeah. Let's not like pretend it's anything else. And, and this warehouse is not just uh, any warehouse, by the way. It's the warehouse you see at the end of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's that warehouse you see at the end of the movie, that right. gigantic warehouse, and they just leave the Ark in a, in a, a, metal, a wooden right. crate, and they just kind of hide it. Right. One of those hiding in plain sight kind of deals. Mm. But yeah, so it's the same warehouse. So oh, I guess apparently... I maybe as a little kid, I just assumed that our Indiana Jones Museum... Like it was like the, this huge warehouse for the Smithsonian underneath. Like, well, you're you're right to question that because that movie took place, I think, sometime in the 1930s. Yeah. Right. And this whole area where they do nuclear testing later on, you know, not spoiler that there's a it's near a nuclear test site. Then that stuff got really started in 1945 mm. is when they started testing. The atomic test site itself wasn't built until 1951 or so. Right. Even then, it must have been some previous place. Who knows? Right. All right. Well, now we're getting to the good part, though. Yeah. So uh, when they when they opened the alien body, the, the skull wasn't there. Um, so everyone's empty-handed. Indiana Jones still is able to escape. He gets off on this uh, rocket sled, yeah. uh, like yeah. you might see from the old 1950s footage. So so this place, and burns up some commies. Oh yeah, it's better <laughs> better dead than red and crisp. Um, but the whole thing is funny that this warehouse is both this secret storage facility, but also co-located with a rocket sled test. Maybe missile test facility, something. Apparently, they do a lot of stuff there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I guess it's efficient. You know, if you can't build 30 different warehouses, just do, right. the, do everything in one spot. Right. Yeah, exactly. Just right there, done in the desert. Let's do it. Blow but the, it up. But the funny thing keep, is, keep the Ark of the Covenant. There's no one there. Like, I know that the guards, <laughs> some of the guards were killed at the beginning of the movie, but this place has no one there. Yeah, not no even one, a janitor. Nothing. Uh, Everyone must have been killed. So that's an. I want to see the movie where the Soviets decide to take over Area Fifty One and just take over everything. That is amazing. You know, prop, props to them to be able to do. What I mean, we probably get this in later on, but yeah, how did they even get into the states? And like, did they have like an inside agent? 
I'd, ah. like to, I'd like to know this, but like, yeah, they're just driving around, like, like no, no thing. They looking as Russian as they could be. Um, yeah, well, yeah. very, very impressive. But uh, so they get on this rocket sled that Gabe mentions, and what happens with the sled? The sled takes uh, Indy way out into the desert. Um, he's able to finally escape, and the next morning, kind of like on a mountaintop, and he sees this town below, and mm-hmm. he wanders into the town. And uh, this is where uh, we start to get uh, some nuclear stuff. Uh, there's a countdown all of a sudden. It's like a minute till test. And he's looking around. There's like weird stuff with this town. Like there are these foam like mannequins all over. Mm-hmm. And the houses are stuck. The TVs are on. But nobody's there. And this countdown starts going off. And he realizes what's happened. Oh, you can't be good. This can't be good. Yeah, that, that he was in one of these towns that they were testing a nuclear. Yeah, going to test a nuclear weapon. He sees off in the distance this giant towering tower, and at the very top of it, we we see it. We see an atomic bomb, some kind of thing. You know, it's an atomic bomb because it looks like a bomb, like an old cartoon. Style they they bomb. really have to spell it out. I mean, yeah. it is an audience, so you gotta can't just show like. What you what it probably looks like, you know, yeah. kind of show bomb. So it's yeah, it's like you know, it's like the round bomb with the fins. It looks like Fat Man and Little Boy from that with bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They're, and there and there are these Russians that that see him. That's right, yeah. And they they find out what's happening too. They they shout they shout something in Russian, and I confirmed with my Russian speaking friend uh, Boris. Hey Boris, uh, that that supposedly there are speaking words, and it says or actual Russian, and they say something like "She's gonna blow." And you're like, oh okay, well. They, there's a bomb. Yeah, they know they figured out what's happening here. Could they understand the announcement uh, in the town though? Like if if they're like underlings, like would they actually speak English at that time? You know? I, I think they are good enough to or maybe, realize maybe when the you noise hear a siren. Eh, eh, eh. That'll yeah. do it. Yeah, okay. I mean these these klaxons, <laughs> uh, they you know to get out of town. Right, right. This is what we're we'll be talking about today. He uh, he survives by very quickly uh, sealing himself inside of a refrigerator that uh, says it's lead-lined on the outside, lead-lined refrigerator. Um, The blast happens. Quite a exciting, you know, very, like, intense scene, I would say. The blast happens. Indy actually does survive. Uh, refrigerator is thrown clear of the blast. It's kind of, he's kind of like riding the shockwave out and gets kind of deposited in the middle of the desert. Looks up and sees this huge mushroom cloud. But and, and gopher. Apparently, the first like half of the movie is yeah, it's is mostly CGI gophers. Heavy gopher. So the next scene is he gets picked up by the military. He's being scrubbed down, and he gets some FBI literally scrubbed down with like yeah, water right, and, a, yeah. and a hose and a scrubbing. And uh, we see some FBI agents who are like questioning him in a pretty. You know, kind of accusatory manner, like what? Are, hey, what? You know, what's the deal? What are you doing with these Russian dudes? Very much uh, in the, in the time of Red Scare, McCarthyism, and yeah, that is a, a, yeah. Running, a running shred in this movie that I really, I, I actually kind of like. Well, and it, it carries over to um, the the next scene then, where he's back teaching. Do, what what university is it? We actually looked this up while watching the movie. I was like, is this Harvard or? And apparently it's just a fake uh, fictional university in the Northeast. So. They, they said, like, one of them was Marshall University and another one was something okay, else. Okay, okay. So some sort of Harvardish. 
like school. So he's back at school, and uh, his class is interrupted by the um, you know the dean, and the dean says, "Hey, you've been. I have to temporarily relieve you of your position. Be eyes on your trail." And they're wondering what you were doing with the Russians. Indy's like, you know, that's that's BS. And the dean says, "Well, I had to resign too because of this." And um, so there's this whole fallout, no pun intended, from that. Um, <laughs> And he's a little bit depressed uh, that he's he's lost his job. And he uh, gets approached by this this young greaser dude uh, played by uh, Shia LaBeouf, LaBeouf. Uh, named Mutt. And uh, Mutt's he's kind of like a greaser with a bad attitude. But he comes up to him and says, hey, you got to help me. Uh, my mother's in trouble. She went looking for her partner, uh, Oxley, yeah, who was down in South America and and she's been kidnapped. Uh, uh, he was kidnapped, and now she's been kidnapped too. Uh, when they start talking a little bit, but they're interrupted in this cafe, this like 1950s malt shop, by some Russian agents who uh, are chasing after him, and they realize that Shia was was basically led to not he wasn't working with the Russians, but he was um, his mother told him to go tell Indy so that the Russians could find uh, Indy. Because supposedly Oxley was looking for El Dorado, the city of gold, and somewhere in, in South America, uh, and it has something to do with crystal skulls. And that- right. And, and then uh, he asked for a letter to be delivered to Indiana, so Shia passes it off. And the, the letter is, needs to be translated at some crazy hieroglyphics and stuff. And so for this episode, I was trying to decide, do I want to do some research on crystal skulls? Like I did mention the Mitch Hedges crystal skull and and whether or not this is was it created by aliens how was it created it's it's this mystical thing and it may have powers uh, it's at museums and things and i decided uh no i wasn't going to to do that <laughs> i gonna go that deep i didn't go that deep into it but crystal skulls is like a theme running through this right. i mean it's in the title these things are are real and people debate about whether or not they're real in the sense that they were created or what if they were actually the skulls of aliens or whatnot but you can buy one on ebay i'm sure if you're looking for it okay so indy decides he's going to take this mission on uh they fly down to south america to peru and uh any movie that has an airplane scene i tend to pick apart uh because i like Mm -hmm. that stuff and they actually uh show this like in the montage they show this old pan am airplane which is actually an antonov 2 painted in pan am colors that's a russian airplane so that pan am never flew uh anyway well one of our friends uh, who's been on the podcast before kevin uh he was on our episode where we played the nuclear war board game uh he emailed into the show to have a similar mode of transportation complaint uh so (laughs) mutt has this harley davidson motorcycle and this is what uh, Kevin decided to nitpick uh, about this. He said that his biggest complaint about the movie was not any of the Crystal Skull stuff, but that Shia LaBeouf's Harley was a hydraulic front disc brake not available until 1972. So certainly not around in the 1950s. Wow. And he says that detail alone bothers me more than the fact that the entire motorcycle is a moderate one. <laughs> but I'm sure of that. For all of the mods they made for the bike, switching to a drum brake may have decreased safety for stunts and stuff. Oh, well. Oh, well. So I appreciate our listeners have yeah. all kinds of nitpicks and, and, and whatnot. So that's Kevin, thanks for that. So you get down to South America, um, Indy's uh, deciphering this letter, and he finally tracks down where Oxley's last whereabouts were, last known whereabouts were, and apparently he was in a, a mental institution, mm-hmm. basically, and they go into his cell and find these crazy writings on the wall, and was it in, in some strange, it was like in um, Nazca or something? Multiple different languages, yeah. yeah. Okay, they yeah. They kept having the word return 
Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Saying return, return. You know, Indy kind of figures out that he needs to go find, forget how, but that he needs to go find the uh, the body or the tomb of this uh, Spanish conquistador. Mm-hmm. Right. When they were flying into Peru, they were looking at, I'm going to butcher this word, but it's like the glycographs or the the sketchings on the ground that you can only see from the air, but on the on the ground you can't see it. And in the cell, he kind of stands up on the bench and looks down, similar to that, and then sees a map that leading him to this ancient graveyard or whatever where the the crystal skull was stolen. From. He gets down to this place, and he, it turns out it's a tomb guarded by these uh, fascinating like combination of ninjas and golem. From yeah, Lord they were the doing Rings. like caipoeira or something yeah. like the the Brazilian martial art. There's like dancing. Well, Indy, Indy kills a couple of them, like Tekken Four. Exactly, uh, but they find the crystal skull, right? They open up one of the uh, yeah they they the, find yeah they yeah. finally find it, and they're like amazed that it's this one piece of quartz that you know he how could how could they have created something like this? The and technology it's, and it's magnetic, yeah, more magnets, more magnets. Well, uh, sometimes sometimes magnetic, yeah, but, yeah because if, when it's in the uh, when it's behind the the, the dead body, nothing is uh, moving towards it. But as soon as the dead body's moved, all this gold coins like start flying towards it, and then just one hangs on. You know, and and then uh, Shia LaBeouf, with his awesome knowledge, says, "Gold doesn't stick to magnets." So, you got that going. <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate that Mutt isn't just a, a dummy. You know, a dummy greaser. Sorry, greasers out there. Um, but he he's got some fun, a little bit of knowledge. He he seems like he's almost kind of seems like he's related to Indy. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Huh. Mutt, uh, Indiana dog. As soon as the. Uh, Crystal Skull gets in the hands of Indiana Jones. Well, surprise, surprise, the Russians uh, end up coming back into the story. They're so good at following him. The Russians, as I recall, they finally chase him, uh, chase him down. Uh, They end up capturing him and bring him back to uh, back to their camp where the Russians are doing these strange dances and things (laughs) like that. Somewhere, somewhere around the in the Amazon. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, so he's brought now to a different location in the Amazon. Indy finally meets Oxley, who's gone completely nuts. Mm-hmm. He, uh, stared, he stared in the to the eyes, of right, this, of, of the skull, skull too long, and he he got some kind of strange powers where he can you know kind of divine certain things. And this is where I really I think I, I forgot all the nuclear references in this film. Uh, I know everybody knows about the nuke the fridge scene. You know that's uh, something people have talked about to death. But in this particular scene, Indy's tied down, uh, and Cate uh, Blanchett's character brings the skull and says, this has amazing power. Similar mm-hmm. to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, they said the, the Ark could be used by the Nazis to do all kinds of power stuff, That the guy in the, the leather trench coat and all that stuff. <laughs> right. um, this character, this Russian character, wants to use the skull to get into the mines of Americans wants to turn them into turn them hmm. into Soviets, which is just like basically what Red Scare was. Right, they're putting fluoride in our water for mind control, like from Doctor Strange. Well, it's, that's environmentally friendly. You don't have to print all those propaganda. <laughs> uh, you just you just have them look at the skull. It's or, easy. or get a Facebook account. <laughs> uh, so the Soviet doctor she quotes Oppenheimer when he was quoting the Hindu Bible. Uh, where he says, I have become the destroyer of worlds, um, which is a quote that he said death, in interviews. Yeah, yeah I, am, I am death, I am destroyer of worlds, right after the Trinity nuclear test. And Dr. Robert Oppenheimer was one of the main lead scientists for the Manhattan Project that mm-hmm. created the first atomic bombs. She takes that and equates it and says the Russians no longer need atomic warfare. Because by 1957, they've already they have their own atomic right. bomb. They had an atomic bomb since the 1949. Cold War uh, right? started, yeah. So they said, you know, Americans have their atomic bombs. We are going to have this mind control power. And if we just can figure out how to take the skull and do something with it, maybe right. get more skulls, 
uh, they'll have knowledge and they'll be able to take over right. Americans' minds. So that's like the plan. In the world, yeah. 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 Right. World domination. But at this camp, we're also introduced to uh, Mutt's mother, mm-hmm. who we find out is... Marion Ravenwood from Raiders of the Lost Ark. So apparently... You know, Indiana Jones had a couple different love interests uh, throughout all the different films, but I guess Marion was his true, his true love. I mean, yeah, it was from the first movie, so you yeah. imagine they bring her back, yeah. So she's comes back. It was about been twenty years in in the movie time since they've seen each other. They all escape from this camp, and there's a scene in in uh, not it's not quicksand, which is wet. It's like dry sand. There's a dry yeah. sand pit. Where Indian uh, Mary are uh, are getting uh, drowned in this dry sand, and it's it's actually revealed that you know surprise surprise yep. Indy is Mutt's uh, father, and there's this whole kind of comedic thing. Wow. I love that scene uh, because to get um, Indiana Jones and Marion out of the dry sand uh, quicksand thing. Uh, he go, Mud goes and gets a rope, and you just see this rope get thrown at Marion, and, and then she gets pulled out. Conveniently, never panned down, and so you don't really see the rope. And then so. the rope gets thrown to Indiana Jones, and it's a snake. Right. Indiana Jones, as we all know, does not like snakes. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's I, kryptonite. That scene is hilarious. I don't know why. This the movie, people might have problems with this movie. I think that scene Yeah, I thought it was a little cheesy and a little forced, but... Hey, I mean, if you're if you're just like suspending all this belief, hey, I'm watching a movie, then yeah, sure. I mean, the disbelief is that they use the the snake, which he says, right. call which it a rope. Get pulled apart. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, get yeah. pulled apart. He says, <laughs> he says, call it a rope. Don't call it a snake, and then I'll grab it. Right, right. Um, but unfortunately, the Soviets catch up to him again. They put oh no, him on because a truck. what's his name? Oxy got yeah. uh, when he asked for help, he went and got the Russians. Yeah. So. Well, when when you're in, when you're insane. So they get thrown on it. They get put onto a, like a convoy to go somewhere, and this convoy turns into a chase. With like, there's like killer ants or something, all and kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's, we don't have to get into the details of this one, but I actually really like this chase scene compared to the one we had in um, in Octopussy. That that chase scene through through the streets of India, that was icky. This one was classic Indiana Jones. Yeah, chase total, scene. total classic Indiana Jones. Very similar to Last Crusade with the tank, and yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was good. Yeah. It was a nice long scene. It was like what eight minutes. Uh, yeah. Except for the one scene that you really hate, I Alex. Do. It's at the end of it, so I choose to uh, ignore that scene. It's when Shia LaBeouf gets caught up in the trees, and then all of his monkey saviors come, and they teach him how to like swing in CGI, and then they all magically catch up to gas-powered vehicles uh, through the jungle. Yeah. yeah, There were just a number of times in this movie where I feel like they were like, well, we still got like you know 50 grand left in the CGI budget, so what are we going to do? You know? uh, I think we should add a prairie dog. Yeah, but uh, Gabe, at least he didn't do the Tarzan thing. The, like, exactly, like, like James Bond did. Yeah, yeah, that was just the worst. <laughs> so this chase eventually leads. They lose the Russians. It's actually revealed that the Russians have actually been following a little bit behind because somehow through this chase, Mac ends up joining the up with Indy and his band again. Of he the good says guys. he's a triple agent. Right, right, right exactly. Um, but he works for the CIA. But yeah. in fact, he's been dropping these little transponders to lead the Russians to to them. So. We get to the final part of the movie, which is this really this location where the skull is supposed to return to, like you know, just as as uh, was written on that uh, the cell in the insane asylum. Uh, I guess uh, Oxley's figured out the secret. They have to pull out some stones to some sand comes out, and this big tower raises up. Yeah, out it of looks stone. like basically it's it, they're like an Aztec uh, Mayan yeah, temple. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Which, again, it's weird in the age of satellites. I guess 1957, I'll give them this. Satellites weren't really a huge thing yet. So yeah, there's no to... Google Earth. But they did have airplanes that they probably flew over the Amazon a bunch. And it was a nice big clearing. And a whole bunch of tribespeople that were, like, hanging out uh, that 
shied away from the crystal skull. So it's like, yeah, how could how was that never discovered from Aaron? I guess the 1950s, we it's still trying to figure out. You know, we're starting to learn new things about the world. Yeah, I guess it's true. We don't Could know much do about the today. ocean. So, right. Yeah, we oh, I, well, the next Indiana Jones movie would need to take place underwater. <laughs> there we go. It had to be like, um, what is that? The The Lost City of Atlantis or, or something. Or in space. Or in space. I, that, you might have actually just put the nail uh, right Some in the head. S- uh, yeah, I, I'm imagining it is going to be Atlantis. Well, they find a room full of treasure in the antechamber, and then they go into this chamber, and there are these uh, these uh, aliens that are sitting in circles, um, these like crystal skeletons with Basically crystal skulls, yeah. but one of them is missing its crystal skull. Hmm. Uh, the Russian woman comes in, Irina. She comes in at the end and says, I finally found them, and she puts the skull on the last alien, and like stuff gets real really quick. <laughs> like The aliens somehow reanimate, like become alive again. And Irina's saying, like, oh, I want to know your powers and everything. And they do this, like, mind meld with her. And the whole room starts, like, quaking. And all spinning the bricks around. are coming down. And things start spinning. And sure enough, the team makes their escape. Mac ends up getting lost. He was trying to gather some gold from the antechamber. His, that was his whole story arc. He the was trying to get out. rich. He loves, go- he loves gold. Well, I thought it was fun because Indiana Jones makes a comment that the aliens, which we learn now, we can talk about the aliens are, he says, archaeologists, which is fun because he can relate to them because he's an archaeologist too. He would like, how much of your time on alien archaeology is spent uh, in the field versus in the classroom? He wants to know those kind of questions. What kind of hat do do the aliens wear? (laughs) What kind of bullwhip do they use? Exactly. How many belts do they wear? Do you have to deal with academic uh, faculty politics too? How does that work? Alex and I look this up as we were watching the movie. Do you remember that whole trend? I guess it's still going on. Mm. The ancient aliens thing on, on History Channel? Uh, I thought you were going to talk about hipster haircuts. But okay. <laughs> no, I, I don't re- No, I don't. So Ancient Aliens is a very popular show. It's all about how everything that ever took place in right. history. Pyramid. Is... It all starts with the pyramids, but then they, they had to fill up 12 seasons, so then everything is aliens. Everything is alien. It's a, the idea, the concept of from the Bible, the chariots of fire. Angel, angels, angels, and, everything. Yeah, angels are—they're aliens. Like, how did how did the Aztecs create uh, technology? It can't be because they figured it out themselves. It right. must have been aliens. Yeah. So any sort of moment in human history, it was it was aliens. aliens. Was Jesus an alien? Like, there's all that. There's the funny meme, right, of the guy who's like yeah. holding his hands. Well, out. Obviously, yeah, aliens. the crazy hair, yeah, aliens. So, <laughs> but that started in 2010. Yeah. Now that show three started, years after. Three years after Indiana, or a couple years after Indiana Jones, yeah. this movie came out. So I, I don't know if they were related. Clearly, these ideas were before this. I kind of forgot that this was before that. They probably saw, oh, Indiana Jones made, uh, in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, made $780 million. Let's get in on this. <laughs> right, right. The movie ends with uh, this woman, Irina, is kind of absorbed into this, uh, what we find out becomes a portal to a new dimension uh, right. from putting the skull on. Which a perfect place for communists to go to. They're probably going to be filled right at home because well, they mentioned the earlier she's that the... not. Yeah, she's not dead. She's just in some other portal doing Well, her. some of the – she might be dead because she like burned up or something. Uh, okay. the, other, the other communists there got drip, lifted up. And they make a comment earlier about how the aliens are some kind of collective being from an al- from an alternate <laughs> right. dimension, uh, which makes perfect sense. That's right. why they, the communists are going to fit in because they they're a collective too. Yeah, wait in line with others. Indy and Marion and and Mutt and um, and Oxley they're they're all able to escape, and the next uh, you know they all get away fine. And actually, the the movie ends with uh, Indy gets not only gets his job back but he becomes the dean. And uh, that's just more academic responsibility, and, and he I don't gets know why he spent wants less to do time it. in the field. Yeah. 
And then, uh, and then uh, Marianne and uh, Indy get end up getting married, and Shield Wolf's character uh, Mud, he's he's there at the wedding, and Oxley's there, and everyone's happy, and it ends on that high note of the wedding. Yeah, Oxley shaved, and God, you love a movie when it just ends with a wedding and ever, happily ever after, and yep. close the book and chapter done, and you feel good about it yourself. You but know? you think maybe they're setting up for the future because the doors open in the church and the wind blows uh, and knocks Indiana Jones's famous fedora right off of the coat hat hanger and it blows over and lands right next to Mutt and he goes to pick it up and you're like, oh, either if you're enjoying this movie and you're like, yeah, Mutt, yeah. Second Adventure is great. Or, Time to pass the franchise on, you know? <laughs> like, let's, go, let's do this thing. Or you get upset because you haven't enjoyed the movie and you're like, don't do that. Yeah. Of course, Indiana Jones walks by, steals the hat, puts yeah. it back on. He's like, I'm not dead yet. Yeah. I got another, I, I got a fifth movie in for me. Let's do this thing. So that's the movie. Thanks for running through the plot there. But we didn't come here to talk about Indiana Jones. We came here to talk about the crazy nuke the fridge scene. But I'm going to also recognize the fact that this nuke the fridge scene has been talked about to death. I'm trying to find ways to make this a little more interesting, bring new things to the discussion. But, you know, also we talk things to death anyways. The idea of some sort of nuke fridge scene has its roots not in Indiana Jones, but in another one of my favorite uh, trilogies, the Back to the Future movies. Ah, uh, yeah, nice. Yep, so 1985, the movie Back to the Future, the original script for that particular film, which is funny because Steven Spielberg's uh, production company had a hand in that film, was basically going to have a refrigerator be used for the time machine instead of a DeLorean. Whoa. It was going to be Doc <laughs> Brown's refrigerator that he that he manipulated with plutonium to travel back How in time. How would they shoot the refrigerator to 88 miles per hour? Then none of that stuff was in there, script. right? Yeah, they yeah. were just going to look for plutonium <laughs> yeah. or something. Gotcha. Um, so Marty McFly was going to have to like survive an atomic blast in the past, and that was how he was going to get home. So instead of going uh, 88 miles an hour, he was like, take the refrigerator, put it next to a nuclear test, and then... Boom. Uh, boom. It traveled <laughs> to the future. But they didn't do that because um, the – Because it's a ridiculous idea? No, 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 no. That, that, that's not it. It's cause, it, it didn't test well. It, well, they were worried uh, – Robert Zemeckis, the director, worried that the idea that children would be inspired to go inside refrigerators because that was a problem. People would go in yeah. a refrigerator like in a junkyard or something. And I'm then, old enough to actually remember those uh, PSAs. Yeah. So, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like my mom used to tell me, uh, do not go inside an empty refrigerator if you see it at a junkyard. I'm like – I don't have a junkyard to play in. It'd be kind of cool, but <laughs> oh, sorry, we yeah. forgot to mention Alex is uh, 186 years yeah, old. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm about as old as electricity. So, <laughs> wait, that was really a thing. That was oh, really yeah. a thing. Yes, that's really why they make thing. they make that joke in the movie where like the yeah. military the, guy comes the in. the suction, the suction of the refrigerator. If you're inside, it's hard to like kick out the refrigerator. And they used to have locks yeah. in the front, right? It's like a like um, a. It was shop. actually. I think it was. Just, yeah, they had locks and yeah, that like an old there was a handle box. you had to open. I mean, yeah. that actually makes a lot more sense than what my theory was. Was that the suction was like too hard. 
Robinson. You know, it's a combination of things. Yeah. There's some science there. There's some practical stuff. <laughs> but I just heard never to do it. So. <laughs> well, that's why the military guy makes that joke when he comes in, when he's being, India's being debriefed by the FBI. And he says, don't you know that those uh, refrigerators are death are traps? dangerous? Yeah. <laughs> they had to, it was like almost like the lawyers like forced him to throw that like uh, <laughs> line in there. Yeah. <laughs> so this idea, who, 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 you know, that's where it comes from. But why does it in the Indiana Jones movie? So there was a controversy like, why did this get put in there? Whose fault is it? Is it George Lucas's fault as a writer, or is it Steven Spielberg's fault? And for the longest time, Steven Spielberg said, blame me, don't blame George Lucas. It was my silly idea. But when that uh, particular comment reached George Lucas, he said, that's not true. Steven Spielberg is just trying to protect me. And it turns out that it was Steven Spielberg, according to this news story, who said that he, quote-unquote, quote, didn't hmm. believe that the scene was realistic enough. But yeah. George Lucas really liked it. He put his research, his crack research team together, and they put together like a dossier file, which he says was about mm. like six inches thick. Wow. And, and here's the quote from George Lucas. He says, if the refrigerator was lined with enough lead, <laughs> and if Indiana Jones was lucky enough to not break every bone in his body— the odds of survival would be, quote, <laughs> according to a lot of scientists, about 50-50. Well, when they were scrubbing him down, they did show him with a bunch of bruises. So, sure. you know, yeah. I mean, I guess the lead worked, and then the odds of survival went up with him uh, with the lead, and he didn't break any bones. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he's indie. Yeah. I mean, he's a comic book character. So Pretty much. Well, I think the best theory that I've heard about this is that Indiana Jones, when he drank uh, the water from the actual, you know, uh, the actual Jesus' cup from the right. Last Supper— that that gave him a ma- you know powers of immortality, hmm. and that's why he can survive all these crazy things. It's what if? Oh, sorry, tangent. Uh, what if he actually did get sucked up in the other dimension and became Han Solo? Oh, and this, the rest of that is just kind of a another dimension. Yeah, exactly. Yep, and then later on he comes back as a, a replicant. And yeah, I guess he was a little old though. Too yeah. old. Yeah, it works. I'm sure there's lots of ways people have put together some sort of multiverse. <laughs> Uh, crossovers are all the rage these days. Right. Um, so everybody, the lots of things, if you search the word Indiana Jones, probably the first hit you're going to get on the internet is, could he actually survive uh, this nuclear test in the refrigerator? So I'm not going to get into that just yet. First, I'd like to talk a little bit about time and place, about why they even put this scene in a movie in the 1950s was where it's set. Uh, so a little bit of the context here. So nuclear testing in the 1950s. Because I actually kind of think that this scene, even though there's these little things to nitpick, mm-hmm. kind of in a way is perfect. For this type of movie. Um, so nuclear testing. So where did nuclear tests take place? Since uh, 1951, when they built the Nevada test site, which is now called the Nevada National Security Site, it was originally something called the Nevada Proving Grounds, where they would test uh, missiles and rockets and mm-hmm. things like that, like rocket sleds and all that. Uh, this place is about 65 miles northwest of Las Vegas. It's very, close. very close. Yeah. yeah. So it's very close. So they, they built this place. Uh, very close to Las Vegas, and like I said, it was 1951, and it was used for testing until 1992. Okay. That's when we've now, since 1992, have had this uh, moratorium on nuclear testing. I mean, that seems pretty recent also. It's pretty recent, yeah. yeah. Um, So it's nuclear testing is, there's a treaty out there called the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty that was negotiated and, and open for signature in 1996. The U.S. has signed it but has not ratified it. It needs a certain number of countries to ratify it so that it actually goes into effect of law. Mm-hmm. But countries, except for North Korea, have recognized it. So they recognize that they're not actually testing the only countries that have tested since 1992 or s- since the treaty has been signed by many of them has been Pakistan, India, and most recently North Korea right. a number of times. Catching um, up. 
before 1951, the U.S. did most of its testing in New Mexico, as we mentioned, in Alamogordo for the first test, and then mostly in, in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean is where they did a lot of their testing. So it's a big debate about if we wanted to advance our nuclear program, if we want to build a thermonuclear bomb, the hydrogen bomb, we're going to have to do a bunch of tests to prove the initial uh, theories of a hydrogen bomb. So they needed a place that was easier to get to. They didn't take weeks of boat trips right. uh, in setting up and place that had logistic chains and, you know, burger joints and all those kind of <laughs> things. We need those closer to home <laughs> so we don't have to worry about that. So that's why they created uh, the Nevada test site. So I'm, I'm guessing you did not go visit the Marshall Islands, Tim. That's a little far away. But I, have you done any nuclear tourism in uh, Vegas? So I have been to the Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas, which is an amazing museum of there's people that work and that are volunteers there that were involved in different aspects of the nuclear mm. testing program. They have all kinds of uh, artifacts. They have all kinds of exhibits set up. And it's a really cool place. I have a lot of little swag that I picked up there. And it's a, it's a cool place to check out. But in March of 2018, my good friend Clark, who's from Las Vegas, he and I are going to the Nevada test site. Uh-oh. Uh, you have to sign up like six months in advance. We're going to go to the are test you on site. the VIP program? No, I'm not that <sighs> cool. I'll mention I have a podcast, and they're going to say no one cares because uh, a thousand people come <laughs> by here every day. Uh, but So they open up this thing. You have to six months in advance, and I'm going to go, and I'll, I'll video and tape record and all that stuff, what I can. I don't think you can actually take photos really there. You're not supposed to pick up uh, Trinitite glass that's on the ground. You can't do any of that stuff, but... My, Clark and I will record a podcast again. So maybe some sort of nuclear testing. Maybe the Hills Have Eyes, which is about uh, mutants and nuclear testing. We'll do something in March uh, okay. when we're over there. But that's our trip. I uh, guess it's, it's in like three months. I need cool. to get ready for that. No, awesome. uh, so we're going to go there. But I did start to think about um, what historical impact nuclear testing has had for Las Vegas, right? Because the Nuclear Testing Museum is all what they what they're all about. So right now we were all drinking what's called atomic cocktails. And these were things, they're very good. They're equal parts vodka, brandy, champagne, and a a dash of sherry into it. And these were drinks that the casinos and bars would do because Las Vegas was all about nuclear testing. They would send out uh, postcards about how great it is to come check out the nuclear tests. Like you would see mushroom clouds and you would feel earthquakes when they would do all of these nuclear tests. Because it's only 70 or so miles from Las Vegas. It was a big... Did tourist they, thing. Do they have gambling there also then? Um, I don't know when the gambling kind of got into Oh, yeah. Them, it was, gambling okay. was, was, so it was definitely like, involved. Hey, lose some money and look at a nuke. So some of the casinos like Binion's Horseshoe and the Desert Inn used to brag about how their casinos would have north-facing hotel windows, <laughs> uh, which they called um, – they'd be able to show that stuff off. They have uh, dawn bomb parties where you would dance the night away until the sky would light up in the morning. Jeez. Um, they would, the Chamber of Commerce would print up calendars advertising detonation times and the best places to look for a nuclear <laughs> test. Uh, and one of the casino gambling guys, the big the big shots, said, quote, the best thing to happen to Vegas was the atomic bomb. <laughs> Just wear these Ray-Bans and uh, look north. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, so this was, a, this was a big deal for them. Um, there was a lot of tests that took place in, in the Nevada test site, 928 tests, uh, 100 of which were above ground. And 828 were underground. And it's because some of them, the tests involved multiple simultaneous detonations. It brings a total to about 1,021 detonations at the Nevada test site. And is there any radiation like still there? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not like some places have more than others, depending on a lot of the underground test sites tends to be okay. If there was venting, there was a problem. Some places are hot spots. 
other places aren't. So if you go to the, the Trinity test site in Alamogordo, New yeah. Mexico, you can walk right up to it, right, right where the bomb took place, and you can. There's a little memorial right. to the test site. You can get your picture with it. And, right. So huh. there are some areas that are more radioactive than others. Um, well, how uh, do you know? But it's any... not like you can't go walk to most of the, most of the places you can go to. Okay. Like, what about the area? Like, with the areas that still have radiation, what's the diameter or how many miles? Like are closed off and then you have fences or how does that all work? The Nevada test site is huge. Uh, I mean, it's a gigantic area, largely where the, a lot of the test place took place is a place called Frenchman's Flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a huge swath of land. Uh, it's very controversial because much of the land used to be owned by uh, Native Americans. Of, of course, yeah. Right? Uh, the Western Shoshone and a couple mm-hmm. of other tribes uh, had this land. It was signed as part of a treaty right. with Lincoln. Uh, but in the name of national security, they worked out quote-unquote, a deal uh, to operate the nuclear test site. So there's a lot of controversy about what's called the downwind community, hmm. people who, when they would do nuclear testing uh, and fallout would take place in radiation, would, would move over and hit these right. communities. And there's lots of cancer, yeah. um, incidents Muti- of cancer later on. And... I mean, mutations in the sense of what, what cancers can cause. Right. You know, people born in, in the Pacific Ocean, there was a lot of this stuff really? of people being born without skeletons, different Jeez. types of mutations. It's It's pretty bad but there are all kinds of different tests so i think this is kind of fun to go through this of the types of tests that took place at the nevada test site the kinds that we saw indiana jones has survived there was underwater testing or above ground testing until 1962 and everything since then was below ground there were test devices dropped from airplanes with and without parachutes launched by missiles both from the ground and air-to-air missiles they were put on the top of towers as we see in the movie they were floated up in the air by balloons, buried underground in shafts or in mountain tunnels, fired from cannons, fired from rocket launchers, or just sitting there on the ground. Lots of different ways bombs went off. There were safety tests, weapon design tests, science experiments, civil defense tests, so basically whether or not people can survive a nuclear blast in their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were military maneuvers, you know, trying to see if a tank battalion can move into a nuclear test detonation area. Could a nuke sink an aircraft carrier test? Could a nuke, sh- <laughs> could a nuke crash a blimp test? Uh, by the way, it can. Uh, <laughs> what happens when you detonate one in space? Like, all of these mm. tests took place. And depending on where you were, you would get either a splash of water in the air. It could be a dud if it fizzles out and doesn't actually become... Yeah, who has to go get that? <laughs> uh, if it doesn't become super critical. A, a burnt crater and fallout, if it's one of those that's on the ground, uh, you would get just a bright light and maybe nothing else if it was an airburst. Huh. Or you would get EMP effects if you were a high enough altitude or an earthquake and what's called a subsidence crater where they have a detonation underground. It vaporizes Earth. The Earth above that falls down and that's what looks like a crater, like they would detonate it like a, a meteor or something hitting the ground. But hmm. really, those underground tests can still cause what looks like craters. Hmm. Basically, the point is, lots of different tests, uh, depending either to design new weapons or to become more confident about the ones that you have right now. So the test that we see in the movie has a lot of inspirations. We were asking about that during the movie. Is kind of Is this something that took place in real life? Yeah. It, it does have some inspirations. 1953, the test series called Operation Upshot Not Hole, which sounds graphic, but really it was just a new, it was a series of nuclear tests. Usually there's Operation something and there's several tests that take place within that particular operation. So there's an operation name, a test series, and then the actual shot, the detonation itself has its own separate code name. Okay. So this one that I want to mention here uh, is innocently called uh, Annie, 
the Annie shot of the Operation Upshot <laughs> uh, knot hole series. This was nationally televised in 1953 in March of that year. As part of the Annie shot, there was another operation called Operation Doorstep, a civil defense test conducted by the Federal Civil Defense Administration, and it looked to see how the detonation would impact two wooden frame houses, which they said were representative of the homes that Americans had at that particular time, right. as well as another host of other items, like 50 automobiles that they parked out in the desert at varying <laughs> distances, which were, quote, according to the propaganda film that uh, I'll link to in the show notes, said that it was loaned by the dealers <laughs> and manufacturers of America. Yeah, like, loan implies that you get right. something back. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that taxes uh, helped with that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to claim this. Some of the cars did survive because they parked them pretty far away, and then they were put in museums and car dealerships and it was cool to go to the car uh dealership that had a nuclear bomb that was uh, i don't nearby. think i'd want to purchase one of those i don't know i don't know I, even if it was fine or they said it was it gets fine. people in the door yeah it's like after driving this car i can't have children anymore <laughs> oh, it's strange uh and they also did seven different types of bomb shelter these two houses these wooden frame houses they were set 3500 feet away and 7500 feet away and the result was the home that was 3500 feet away from this te- nuclear test completely destroyed hmm. The one that was 7,500 feet away, damaged, but still okay. <laughs> you just need a half of a wall. Now, let me – okay, let me ask you something. So when they test these things, they're doing this out in the desert, right? There's nothing to impede the blast or absorb the energy, right? Usually they're done in wide open spaces. Okay. So that you can see the full detonation effect. Right. But most of the time, you know, if you think about like a, an attack actually happening, probably going to happen in some sort of populated area where there's a lot of buildings and right. things that would absorb the energy – did they account for that at all? Do you know if that... As part of their calculations, they would they would try to estimate kind of what the effect would be, and, and, and then it would have, like, well, margin of return after a certain distance would be different. It's one of those, it's hard to measure, right? But they also had real-world examples of what has become of a city if you dropped nuclear bombs in them. There was two examples in Japan, and they mm-hmm. would use that base to try to figure out how much wind and blast is created. They said, well, about 620 miles per hour. And they would say how far that would go. And so there was some science there that was based on real-world examples. And there was also just mathematical equations they would try to estimate using things what was called an overpressure. They know a house gets knocked down at 5 PSI overpressure, and concrete buildings need higher, like 15 or 20 uh, PSI. That's not the exact amount. But, you know, they, they know some of that stuff. And then they would say, well, a city tends to have this number of houses, and they would try to estimate that way. But it's also other things to t- take into effect, right? Like fires. Because none of these homes, even though the homes in the movie apparently have water and electricity, maybe gas lines, uh, those are things that exist in real world cities. But if though, you know, you imagine all of a sudden you, you blow up a bunch of buildings. Now you have gas fires being started throughout mm-hmm. the entirety of the city. And the, people don't calculate a lot of the times what the effect of that would be. That's sick. Yeah. But yeah, so those are, that's one example. Another one, 1955, Operation Teapot. I always love how innocent these names sound. 14 different blasts in the Nevada desert over three months. And the one from there that is the most applicable, the Apple II test. First iPhone. (laughs) The (laughs) Apple II. Yeah. Uh, In in May May 5th of that year, uh, it was designed to test structures of various materials and placed different things uh, at varying distances from the blast site. So things like fake mannequins inside houses with people posed like they would be in just the normal part of life. Like in uh, the movie. Just like the movie. Uh, and there was also cameras to, to watch what was happening. I think also as part of this series, they would bury like canned food, okay. water, okay. beer. 
different things like that, and they would try to test to see what the effects would be. And in a lot of these tests, they also used animals like pigs and dogs and things, oh, and they would tie them up, and then they would see what the effects would be. No, I was wondering this in the movie whether they actually would have that level of detail. I mean, would they have, like, they had, like, sprinklers yeah. running and the TV on? Did they really try to very accurately? No, not nearly to the degree of the Spr- movie. Sprinklers running, but yet the water doesn't work in the house when he tries it. So uh, I was like, what? <laughs> they were not nearly this elaborate. I mean, there were some things that were fascinating. They wanted to see what different types of clothing would affect uh, the heat from a nuclear blast. So they would dress someone in dark clothing. Then they would have like a light sundress. And then these mannequins. someone in like a greaser outfit with like the <laughs> Sheila Booths there. Wouldn't that be great if it turns out that the greaser, uh, that we put grease in your hair and you wear a leather jacket, <laughs> that that makes you immune to nuclear fire? You and end up kind of looking like the guy from that video game. Uh, uh, was that Fallout? No. Oh, yeah. Wow. All that stuff makes sense. It's too bad that it's not what turned out to be. I don't think they ever tested leather jackets. We'll have to see. <laughs> so they would test things like to see what certain shades of clothing would help and all of that. But it was these homes were not nearly as elaborate as, as they are made out to be in the movie. And also they tended to be one or two of these houses. They wouldn't build uh, all this other stuff. But I'll get, I'll get into that. I have a whole series of rants on that front. But one more example, I think it's interesting. In 1957, Operation Plumbob, that test series, the same year that the movie takes place, there was 29 detonations in that year, that series between May and October of that year. Very controversial because they used 18,000 service members in the U.S. military uh, and they basically had them going out and doing maneuvers during the course of this particular series. A nuclear bomb would go off, they would be in trenches, and then they would say, advance towards the mushroom cloud. They were supposedly told ahead of time like what their risk would be, uh, but they would try to see how they would fare in the course of a military battlefield if, if nuclear weapons were being used. And by some accounts, the radiological effects of those particular theories have caused between 1,000 and 20,000 deaths. Jeez. Uh, and between 11,000 and 200,000 cases of thyroid cancer. Their, their official reports say it was much lower. Um, other reports say it was much higher. But it was a particularly controversial series of tests for the public. Wow. So these fake towns that you mentioned earlier, Gabe, uh, I think the fun part about that is either they're referred to as doom towns or survival towns. I guess depending whether or not you're a glass half full or half empty kind of person. These doom towns were created to test civil defense and military questions that the scientists and, and the defense planners would have. So civil defense, as we mentioned earlier, this is trying to organize a population to survive a nuclear attack so that whatever survived, whoever survived, there'd be some sort of semblance of a mm-hmm. world afterwards. Right. And it's also to tell the your population that it's okay that we can have all these nuclear weapons because we'll be able to survive. And you're telling the enemy, don't even think about attacking us because we'll, we'll survive regardless the right. russians had a similar civil defense program we had one at various times in history you can say how robust it was or whether or not it was realistic but these civil defense tests in these fake towns mm-hmm. were to test things like military or civ- civilian buildings how would they survive wooden versus concrete structures could you reinforce a house in a particular way and i know alex you work in building construction a little bit of that so that was some of the things they would test would a particular type of reinforcement of a house like if you reinforced it with rebar versus a wooden right. structure concrete I, versus stuff what would you do right and i imagine anything we're building nowadays is probably not going to do as well as anything that was built eh, 
40, 50 years ago. Matt. It's all just brick and just brick and uh, wood. So. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. This is the first podcast we're taping in my new house that my wife and I just bought earlier last year. And this whole structure was made in 1940 for the Department of Defense. And it's plaster walls and like brick walls on the outside. It's pretty sturdy structure. Our home inspector said, this is not going to fall down. And I said, in the event of a nuclear test? And he goes, well, oh I don't know. God. <laughs> I can't sign off Tim, can I Can I ask the question that all of our listeners are asking, do you have a bomb shelter in this house? I don't, I don't have a bomb shelter. Yet. But what I do have is, I think, an old gas furnace that's right outside that has a padlock. I don't know if it had lead lined. I have to go check to see what kind of fridges it has in the downstairs. But you know, it's got to get somewhere, right, in case. Because we're not too far from the Pentagon, but I think we're far enough away that we'll deal with fallout we won't deal with. As my old apartment, Gabe, where you currently live, you have yeah, to deal I'm with the, the blast. I'm in the danger zone, yeah. I have to deal with fallout. Yeah, we'll see. You know, it's, you have to you have to you have to add equity to your house by improving it. Well, I can maybe add some of that stuff. I work downtown, like three blocks from the White House. So if 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 it happens during working hours, I'm pretty yeah, much right. as good as gone. So yeah, ho- hopefully it's at night when you're cozy <laughs> yeah. in your house. Yeah. So um, okay, so I thought the so I thought this town it was a very like haunting image in this movie. You know, of this like stillness before the storm, and I, I actually thought the blast. Like the the blast itself was very like visually stunning. I mean, it, it really, sure. yeah, it really got me. Unlike some of these other movies I see, where I'm just kind of like, oh, okay, nuclear weapon. This was like very detailed. I'm wondering what you, the expert, think. I mean, how did this do in terms of shaping up to what this would actually look like? So I've decided I was going to start rating movies and their portrayal of nuclear bomb explosions. So if they happen to have a nuclear explosion, I'm going to start grading these on an arbitrary scale, which I'm going to call. Uh, three different levels. One, uh, I'm gonna the, I'm gonna call fizzle, which is essentially if it's a dud, if it's not so good. Then the middle area will be called low yield, which is like a good attempt, but it's still you know not so great. And then there's you know thermonuclear, which is the best level. This is like the top level of uh, high accuracy portrayal, of course, with artistic like they did licenses. Their if they do their yeah. research, or you know, I also understand that there's an artistic license to things about what you would visually right. want to portray. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people say that the bomb that's used in Terminator 2 is very realistic, and it's certainly mm-hmm. some stuff there that's realistic, and other ones aren't so realistic. This one almost became thermonuclear to me. There are certainly some <laughs> things that are really good, but there's enough, especially upon the rewatch that Alex and I just did today, that I, I dropped it down to a low yield. It's not a dud, mm, okay. but it's, it's a low yield. And so some of the things that I think are good about the movie that it gets right visually. You know, the radio announcement over the intercoms. They're, those are real, those take basically taken from radio announcements that would take place where people were watching the okay, test. Okay, but would they be in the town itself? Probably not, because okay, what's the okay. point, right? All right, right, right. Like, no one's supposed to be there, so who yeah. are you telling? The pigs. Or the, the mannequins. So the, the, those radio announcements would, would say, don't look at the blast. Uh, put on your goggles if you're going to look at the blast so that the light doesn't burn your retinas out. And they say, you know, turn away and look 10 seconds after the first light. You can listen to YouTube videos of testing hmm. and people when they were watching the test from, from observation towers or uh, observation platforms. Those are just the same lines of dialogue pretty much. Hmm. The bomb itself on top of the tower uh, has gra- markings on the side, graffiti essentially. Someone like wrote it on the side that says, I like Ike. A couple times that yeah, in the first the second movie, time, yeah. second time in the movie that where the phrase I like Ike is on there. There's a rumor that supposedly uh, people have written on uh, racial slurs and various things onto the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
most video evidence does not indicate anything like that. There's no photo of that or anything. But the idea of writing something funny on a bomb maybe came from Dr. Strangelove, the, the Kubrick movie. Uh, in that movie, the bombs have the words, hello there, written on one of them, and dear John. Well, I mean, I think that's one. been pretty popular in bombs, like, history. It was definitely writing done, something it was definitely done yeah. in World War II and other times. Definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, there's all kinds of uh, pictures of that. It's visually in the movie, there's there's a thermal heat flash. You know, you see the all of the paint kind of flash up into the air. So one thing I noticed when they had that is that when they're showing that heat, there's also seems to be a wind. Like there there's mm-hmm. wind blowing. Do you think that is that realistic or is it that is. okay? It is. Right. So so there's the thermal radiation. There's the heat flash. That's if you're looking at the nuclear bomb and you're seeing it. That that heat flash and the light and the energy that released from there that'll burn your eyes. That'll cause your skin to that catch would be on fire. associated by some sort of wind that would. Yeah. Well, uh, heat. Okay. Essentially, no, but during the yeah, so, and then the next thing you have. Okay, is, no, is, but during the heat flash, uh, there, yeah, in the movie, during the heat flash, there's like wind. So you see the mannequins like melting yep. away. This is before the shockwave comes. So usually, the, if you see testing video, you can see this get played out. Any sort of flammable substance, like paint on the side, uh, if you have a metal pole, there's either there's rust on the outside, something that can catch on fire, that usually like pops up like a flash of dust. Okay. It doesn't usually get blown away, but it kind of like poofs okay. as if you're kicking up dust okay. is usually what that looks like. And then immediately following that is a shockwave. Okay. And the shockwave is heated air that expands out. And you see that in the movie. You see the first initial like poosh, kind of pushing things away. So I think the dust then gets pushed away. And, and then there's the actual air blast wave that follows that's what we see in the movie that destroys buildings. You also see the light on the sky change color, which is because the oxygen is getting burned up. So you get this kind of more orangish hue in the in the sky. You see that. That's pretty interesting. Um, according to NukeMap, the tool, the online tool developed by Alec Wellerstein at Stevens Institute of Technology. You can go on there and, and type in your a detonation point and what kind of bomb you want. And you can blow up anything you want and see what the effects are. It's kind of a fun tool that people can play around with. Also, also called by Tim as Friday Night. <laughs> uh, you just watch out. I'm going to put you on there next. <laughs> I'm going to just find out what kind of bomb I can put on just your house that won't affect mine here. But Nuke Map says a 74 kiloton blast. Now I'm going to guess that's what it was. There's no indication in the movie what it is. It's certainly not a, a megaton style uh, nuclear bomb. But the as part of Operation Plum Bob in 1957, one of the shots there, shot Hood, was 74 kiloton. That was the highest of that series there, I think. Um, that would have about a 5 PSI shockwave, which would destroy houses, out to about 1.2 miles. And I would say, I don't know what you gentlemen think, I would say that's about where that is in the movie. It goes about that far. Say the car, and I did the math on this, say the car is driving about 70 miles per hour out of there. You know, that's, that's pretty fast for a car from the 1950s. It wouldn't get far enough away in 20 seconds or so. Right. Okay. So it would it, that blast would go out as far yeah. Is there and I did I looked this up too. My 2010 Corolla, my Toyota Corolla, can get a quarter of a mile in about 16.8 seconds. Clearly, even today's cars, even not Corolla is not a speed demon or anything, but it, it's faster than those, the standard cars back then. It wouldn't be able to get away. So that that that, that kind of matches up pretty well. Okay, so that so. There's some good things. I'm yeah. wondering, but you didn't go thermonuclear, and I'm wondering. I mean, I have my own question. I'm no expert on this, but I was like, why is Indiana Jones first? He's like right next to this 51 hangar, and then all of a sudden he's like right yeah. in this town where they're doing this nuclear weapon. Shouldn't somebody be watching this? How did he just wander accidentally to this area? This this is gets really weird. And Alex and I mentioned this earlier because 
let's say that the hangar, all the guards were killed and all the workers there were killed. Hundreds of people and there was no alarm set off. Fine. But it's an overnight thing. He finds the, the test site the next right. day. At no point was there a shift change. Did anyone <laughs> nearby this area where they do nuclear testing didn't see anything? Yeah, the hangar's all like messed up. Like no one's like raised an alarm. So uh, there, there are cameras. I couldn't figure out whether or not the cameras on in the the Doom Town Survival Town. If they're probably not live. If they are, there's some visualization there that they could have seen that there was someone there. I mean, but they do look at it with a binocular. I mean, they do can see there's a car driving around there. Let's yeah, not right? do the test, right? You can probably see some movement flashing or something. They would, they would be, they would see something. These this nuclear test apparently just takes place for, by itself. By itself. <laughs> who's who's doing? I mean, these test sites, these are really big deals. They built 24, 30 houses in this town and and a water tower. And I'm no imagining reason. there's a bunch of hotels uh, around that people are watching north, you know, waiting, yeah, so, waiting to see this, drinking so, their atomic cocktails. Exactly. But, you know, okay, fine. It's, it's a ghost town. Maybe they, maybe it's a commentary on how unsafe they were with nuclear tests. They would just yeah, be like, it happens every day, so they don't even pay attention anymore. Right. And, yeah. um, but there's other things that did bother me. And I'm going to go through a couple of things here. I like the heat flash that happens, the puff of smoke from the stuff being vaporized. But then you see after the puff of smoke and on the houses and everything, there's still paint on the house. They didn't remove uh, the paint from okay. the house yeah. on CGI. So you see this puff, like like the roof catches on fire, but nothing else. So they're, they inconsistently do that part of it. The mushroom cloud I thought was a lot larger than a 74 kiloton would be. Yeah, it, it looked huge. Big. When he's looking up at it, it just looks enormous. And, I mean, it was very well done. And maybe this is where the artistic license yeah. comes into place, where I'm maybe less super critical about this than you'd be, but yeah, it did seem really big. Either it's a uh, below 100 kiloton test and Indy's able to survive because of the distance and all that stuff, or it's a megaton test where okay. you get those gigantic mushroom clouds like that, gigantic being a relative term, and there's no possible way he survives even if you suspend doubt, unless you really believe the theory that he's being protected by God. The other issue is that usually these mil there's military drills that are done alongside of the tests, like I mentioned earlier about Operation Plumbob and all that, yeah. but there's no military around at all there's no cables and 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 measuring equipment like most nuclear tests have miles and miles and miles of wiring and cables running up to the test itself uh all kinds of different measurements measuring right. equipment if you're gonna do this you might as well learn something we're not just it. trying to find out whether or not a building blows up yeah. we all want to know at this distance what kind of uh overpressure right. there is and they try to figure all that stuff out but none of that stuff's there at the top of the tower where the nuclear bomb is it's an actual <laughs> nuclear bomb you know what I mean? It's a gravity bomb. It, it's in a casing. It's in a round oval casing like the Fat Man yeah. and Little Boy bombs with tail fins. I couldn't find any example of actually a tower test having an, a, a bomb like that there. Because okay. why would they do that? Right, They're not exactly. testing the fin. They're not testing the casing. Yeah, you would only need that if you're dropping it from high altitude of yes. an airplane. Most nuclear theory. tests were like – it was a test device. It wasn't a bomb itself. They would test nuclear bombs with parachutes. They would like drop them out of an airplane and then how would it would slowly parachute down to the altitude and then it would detonate. And then they would put that in a, a, a test device that looked like an actual bomb itself. But there's no reason to do that on a tower test. I couldn't find any examples of that. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it's it's a cue to the audience, okay. right? It's like shorthand. Yeah, right. This, this is, this is bomb. a bomb, yeah. Right. If they just had a, an actual testing device, people would would say, well, what they, is that weather tower doing? They should, have played, they should have played Hound Dog again over <laughs> it. So you would, you know, oh, oh, okay, it's the 1950s still. Yeah, also for some reason the tower is is on top of or amidst a, a mountain range. We 
didn't do a lot of mountain range tests. I'm pretty sure we haven't done any mountain range tests. Uh, you can test inside of a mountain, but when you do a nuclear test, as, we, as Gabe and I mentioned earlier, you do this in a wide open area, so you can see the, what the full effects are. If you do this in a mountain, much of the nuclear explosion will be effect will be absorbed by the mountain. Right. Why add any variables? You can't control those variables. You want to be able to know. So I don't know why they did that. It probably looks cool. Because you can have it on top of a mountain. but And look down onto the town. Yeah, it's right. all cinema. Uh, they certainly didn't do it like that. If Indy would have learned anything from his civil defense pamphlets or any of these uh, duck and cover stuff, he should have learned that should have went inside one of the fallout bunkers or shelters that they do alongside these tests. Or at least have gone into some sort of concrete structure. Those are the ones that had survived. Right. He didn't look for one of those. He just went back inside the well, house. This, and this is what I was wondering, too, and I'm watching this, you know, because the thing is, Indy is this, like, resourceful, yeah. you know, super smart kind of guy. To what extent would he react... You know, I would think, how would a normal person at that time react if right. a bomb was actually going off? Would no. they look for their fridge? Would they go in the house? Like, what would they say do versus what? I would have said a prayer, yeah. I would have prayed to all, <laughs> yeah, all the gods. Just say a prayer. Just say a prayer. There is a question there. Did he go inside the refrigerator because he knew it was lead-lined? Lead-lined refrigerators aren't a thing. Like, commercial-grade <laughs> refrigerators you would buy for your house, that was never a thing. It didn't help with the cooling? It didn't. I mean, lead-lined did not help for insulation. I mean, sure, I guess. So would concrete, right? If you had some sort of kind of lining to it. But there are lead-lined refrigerators, but those are used in laboratories. And usually the really thin amounts of lead. It's just yeah. basically you have a, an isotope sample, and you want to make sure that if someone's sitting next to it, they don't get a burn on their leg or something, right. um, or they something bad happening. Hmm. Uh, those exist, but not commercial grade stuff. So I think he just went in the fridge because he. This had, was just a hail mary. He threw up a hail mary right. and just. I don't think he it, had, it ended up working. Right. He had no expectation. He threw up a Lucas and it worked. Yeah. 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 He had no expectation that it would that he would survive because of radiation. He had no expectation that he would survive the blast or get fired out. And that was just like, oh, I don't have any. Indiana Jones never has a plan, right? He just figures out stuff. As it goes along, that's kind of his running theme. So yeah. he just probably went in there because it was secure. He was, I think, he was looking. He looked inside the chimney for a second to see if he could hide in there. Right. I think he was just looking for something to hide in. Well, once again, I mean, this did seem very like James Bond esque, like kind of you know similar thing where James Bond he like does these like random ridiculous things and survives every time, right. even though the odds of him surviving are like one percent each time. So, uh, but let's say some of the other stuff. Once he did survive and he looked out to the mushroom cloud. Uh, I think they it's fun. They, they had a little bit of a thing that they were drawing from for the visual effects. Like you see the mushroom cloud, and off to the left you see these really thin columns of smoke. In the movie, it's falling. Like it's some sort of debris that went up in the air and it's kind of falling down. But visually, when you see a nuclear test, say, you know, on YouTube or online, you usually see a mushroom cloud or some sort of large spherical explosion. Mm -hmm. And then you also see these trails of smoke around there and people okay. wonder what those are a lot of the time and it's interesting what those are those columns of smoke they are rockets that are hmm. firing basically fireworks they get launched off very soon before the nuclear test takes place and what they're used for is the column of smoke goes up it usually goes kind of away from the detonation site at an angle mm -hmm. and then they can visually see in, in the recording after the fact the shock wave and what it's doing. How far is it going out? Because the columns of smoke will move. They'll dissipate. Oh, okay. They'll move along. It's so like a speed kind of thing. Exactly. They'll okay. try to. They'll, they'll test it with with uh, you know fast speed cameras and try to see slow it down. Kind of what's right. what's happening. And that's how they're able to gauge how far out the shock wave goes and what the effects would be. Because they would say, oh well, this this particular smoke column moved X amount 
they can judge it based and off of that. And back to something you said earlier about um, certain miles per hour that they could they know how fast it goes, the shockwave. Yep. And that's how they get that information. So I don't know if the visual effects designer knew what they were doing for this, if they were trying to go for this, or they were just showing debris because it, it's pretty good-looking debris. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned the, the CGI and the, uh, the, the graphic design in it. Uh, my friend Brian moved out to California about – three years before this movie came out Mm -hmm. and it was the first movie that he was actually had a full credit in. So, um, me and my friends, we all saw it and I was not impressed when I first saw the movie, but we waited, we had to actually even wait longer to wait for his company to show up. And when they show 50 names on the screen as it's (laughs) scrolling up, like, Whoa, there he is. There he is. There he is. We got him. So, uh, yeah. Shout out to Brian in California. He's still doing it. So good. Good. Well, again, I didn't, I'm not treating this as a dud. It's just in that middle area in terms of visualization. I, I, I would be very surprised if you worked on that one scene. Uh, okay. so, yeah. Well, of all the things that I complained about, the thing that I think is the worst imagery portrayed in the film, what they get wrong, is the fact that the Doomtown has mannequin kids and playing on a slip and slide, right? Yeah. You know, that like tarp thing with right. the water and you slide in there. This supposedly takes place in 1957. The slip and slide was not invented until 1961. Look at Tim with his research. So I think that's the big problem for me. In addition to being a nuclear enthusiast, Tim is also a slip and slide enthusiast. <laughs> uh, Tim, when was the slinky made? Ooh, ooh. Uh, uh, this is not that kind of podcast. Um, I, didn't, I didn't do crystal skull research. I looked at slip and slides. So the movie, uh, as a lot of movies have, is a novel. they have a novelization. Like someone wrote a book right. based off of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And this is how that particular nuclear scene is described after Indiana Jones escapes hmm. the mushroom cloud and looks, is looking at it. Here's the quote. A mile away, a massive mushroom cloud rose from the desert floor. It climbed in a swirling column of smoke and fire. For a moment, Indy imagined hollowed out eye sockets and the gaping maw of a skull, human or demon. At this moment, staring at what man had created, Indy doubted there was any difference. That is like poetry and deep. Right. In this funny, silly scene of Indiana <laughs> Jones surviving a nuclear explosion. I think it's fun there. They, they add all this cool poetry to it and then also connect it again back to the crystal skulls. It would have been crazy, though, if in the mushroom cloud they showed a skull, like, kind of, like, in the mushroom cloud, like, subtly, you know? Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's quickly run through the last little bit of stuff because everyone has talked about is the Indiana Jones, the scene of him surviving, is that something that can actually take place? So most people group three types of complaints to this particular problem. What about radiation? What about the uh, fridge flying so far and fast? And could he survive the fall or the blast itself? So radiation. Uh, most commercial-grade fridges, as I mentioned, uh, did not have lead lining. That was never a thing. Most refrigerators that were lead-lined were used to hold nuclear materials, radiological materials used in nuclear medicine, say at like a hospital. Those tended to only have about 1.25 inches of lead. What if they needed a fridge last minute and then the only one they could find was one that held radiation on the base yeah. so they, like, they threw it in there? The problem was is that it's, they're very small. They, and they don't, yeah, they, don't look like, uh, they don't look like a commercial fridge. Exactly. Right. In the movie, I think it's called King Cool <laughs> gotcha. Fridge, right? Uh, so that whatever. But they kind of invent this thing that doesn't exist to create a scenario where Indy can survive. Fine, whatever. I'm not a scientist. I only play one on a podcast. So I'm going to turn to the experts about this particular question. Uh, In 2016, in a science journal, uh, an article was published called Indiana Jones and the Fridge to Freedom. 
This was by the Department of Physics and Astronomy at University of Leicester. The team asked whether Indiana Jones would be able to survive the lethal dose of gamma radiation if inside the fridge. And here's what they did. They crunched the numbers, and they concluded that the fridge lining of lead would need to be at least 1.8 inches thick so that he would remain unharmed. So unless the entire fridge door was made of lead and not just lead lined, he would not be able to survive that. Um, Think about it similar, like if you had a suit jacket that wasn't just lined with silk, but was made entirely of silk. Uh, Yeah, that's a pretty good capstone by that grad student. Yeah, it's not bad. Uh, This article doesn't even get into other types of radiation dangers. You know, you have alpha particles, beta particles, gamma radiation. Alpha and beta particles are no problem. Those things tend to be blocked by uh, your skin, a shirt. They're really dangerous if they're breathed or consumed in food or water. Um, But neutron radiation is a huge problem. A refrigerator door would not stop neutron radiation. Hmm. And so the question is, if he's close enough to get hit with neutron radiation, there's nothing really you can do. Um, But there's also the question of the heat coming from that particular nuclear explosion. Is that turning the the refrigerator to an oven? That's a great question. Um, People that have apologized for the film or tried to explain it have said that the fridge is flying. So it's no chance of, you know, it's like walking across the coals. If there's not enough contact with heat, heat doesn't really bother you that much. That's what they say. Okay, so he survives the radiation, but then what about actually surviving? I mean, this thing is launched right. for, like, miles and miles, it seems, at high speed. Like, could he have survived that, too? I'll turn again to some experts that know the math on this stuff. Math was never my strong suit. I'm more about talking about other people doing math, right? <laughs> There's a YouTube channel called Real Physics, R-E-E-L, Physics. Uh, so it's about whether or not Hollywood effects are realistic or not. We quoted them in our episode on G.I. Joe 2, the, this, this <laughs> space-launched, uh, uh, what was it, some kind of metal rod, tungsten rod, and whether or not it would cause stuff. Hmm. They, they looked into that. So that, I'm going to give them props again. They calculated that the blast effect of a nuclear test would be about 620 miles per hour, hmm. which, because of math, leads to <laughs> 5.5 Gs Jeez. of instantaneous... Jeez. Like G, like a uh, like no, G, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so instantaneous acceleration, which is survivable, but you know, it's it, like when they rode the rocket machine. Exactly, uh, but ironically, they say it's the heavy mass of the fridge that saves him, because if it was a lighter fridge, it would accelerate to twenty five Gs, which mm. is not as survivable. But he, they conclude that there's no way that the fridge could be traveling faster than the blast wave, and they conclude that because that's science. Right, something that's being propelled by a force can't travel faster than the force that's propelling it, unless it's being propelled by its own rockets yeah, or exactly. things like that. that right? Yeah, and that that just looked weird in the movie that he's been like thrown clear from you know everything. I mean, they overcatch and, and the, the car. car. Yeah, the yeah. car like left way before him. So let's let's assume that everything went perfectly. Right. Let's assume that somehow there's one fridge that was lead lined for some reason, and there was enough lead. And let's say that. He, he got, you know, he survived the G's and he got thrown clear and, uh, you know, the, he wasn't killed by the acceleration. I mean, could this, could he have actually survived? What about the rate? I'm worried. What about the radiation, the fallout? I mean, is he too close to the blast? Is this something that one in a million chance he actually could have survived, do you think? When you see him coming out of the fridge and he's out there and there's a mushroom cloud and people worry about, there's, is there continual radiation? I mean, there isn't prompt radiation anymore. That's an instant, instantaneous thing that after a nuclear bomb goes off. There's, so what you have to worry about is fallout. And I think the interesting thing about fallout is 
it tends to drop depending on where you are. A lot of wind prevailing questions and where it's where the wind is blowing, all that stuff. 30 minutes is tends to be the rule of thumb of how long you have if you're if you duck and cover and the explosion's taking place. 30 minutes is how long you have before debris starts to fall down. Hmm. So I would assume that he sees the explosion, he takes a picture, right? And then he runs <laughs> in the other direction. Maybe the wind isn't blowing towards him and it's blowing the other direction because clearly there would be fallout because it was a near the ground explosion. He gets to somewhere, uh, some fallout hits him, but he's able to get scrubbed down fairly quickly. I think that he would be able to most likely survive his journey, which seems to be over the course of like another week right. or so. Okay. But he should be concerned about some kind of radiation, <laughs> some kind of cancer in the future. Or No, it's the snakes. He's worried about the snakes instead. <laughs> or another son. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, or he's fine because he's uh, immune to all death and destruction because of his previous encounters. Yeah, the, I think uh, that's what uh, we would uh, need to invoke challenge. here to yeah to make sense of this. So one more website I want to give props to. It's a website called overthinkingit.com, which I think would get along very well with our podcast. A molecular biologist by the name of David Sheshner concluded that in order for the archaeologist's stuffed frigid frigidier to be accelerated by an atomic blast to the speeds that we see when he lands, it would need to be placed so close to the bomb that he would be obliterated by any of the other the myriad of effects. So I think that's an interesting question hmm. there. Um, I think personally that the bigger problem would be that the fridge would be turned into an oven because of the, the heat being released. Uh, he'd have to make sure that the oven door wouldn't be opened up at all during this process. It's, he must maybe close it with his own hands or something. Suction. Uh, but the question I posed to Gabe as a pilot, is this any worse than flying Spirit Airlines? Uh, <laughs> well, I, it's funny. Uh, um, Harrison Ford, who plays Indiana Jones, of course, is also a pilot, and he— uh, he's, I think he's been in two accidents. I know one, his his engine quit after takeoff. Ooh. So I guess the question is, is it any worse than flying with Harrison Ford? <laughs> no, I, I don't mean to. I think he's a very good pilot. He just had some bad luck. But uh, yeah, that's something to worry about. So my concluding thought on this, I don't hear what you guys think about this, is I think this scene could be done differently, and it would be completely fine by my standards. If he would have gone inside a fallout shelter, or if he would have been inside the fridge. And they just put the house a little bit further away, and you see a scene of him coming out of rubble and then getting a ride from the military because they noticed that he was there or something, a like helicopter ride. I agree with that. I think that would have been okay. You don't get the imagery of him surviving and looking at a nuclear explosion, uh, mushroom cloud and all that stuff, but I would have been okay because I really think that this – I'm gonna. Well, I'll save this for a little bit later on. I like this scene quite a lot, and I'm glad it's in the movie. It's just – done it, so weirdly it, well it, for me it just feels out of place and it does feel like something it doesn't seem to fit the continuity of the movie they're in this you know military installation looking at you know old crates and then all of a sudden they're out in the desert and he's about to be blown up and it to me it did have that vibe of like oh they had this some idea that this would be a really cool thing to see how do we work this in here they work backwards I, yeah it was a little bit clumsy um but i i kind of agree with you i i I was enjoying it while I was watching it. I wasn't thinking, oh, this is so stupid. Versus toward the end of the movie when I'm seeing the alien spaceship. Right. Uh, yeah, right. I, that's another story. I, I thought the scene was okay. Um, it's just – it's Indiana Jones. It's campy. It's – I mean I know if you read about it online, 
Yeah, is this any more different than jumping out of an airplane with uh, the inflatable raft right. and surviving that? So or, it's like or seeing a seven hundred year old knight. Right. Yeah. Exactly. In right. The right. Last Crusade. Right. Right. I mean, he looked like he aged a little bit, but uh, not maybe not seven hundred years. But yeah, it, it's Indiana Jones. He survived it. It was good for the television or the big screen, you know. And yeah, so 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 be it. Cool. Uh, well, that's all the nuke stuff. I think before we get into our movie discussion, I'm going to play a quick game because I'd like to break up the very dour uh, nuclear discussion about fallout and radiation and, and future illnesses that Indiana Jones is going to have to deal with in the Rocky movies, right? Rocky gets hit in the head quite a bit with various punches from mm-hmm. Russians and non-Russians. Mm-hmm. Mr. Um, T. Exactly. And, and I think it's uh, Rocky Five. He has um, some kind of, you know, brain issues. He's got, like, what is it? Uh, he's got concussions and things like that. And that's also a big deal in Rocky Balboa, which is the sixth movie, is that he's, he's suffering from something like this. I would be okay if they retroactively retconned in Indiana Jones 5 that he's got some sort of maybe health issue that's coming from the surviving a nuclear explosion. Or all of his adventures. <laughs> yeah, so I think that would be fine if they add that together. Maybe... He's more like uh, Batman in some comic books where he's old and he has to have a new generation of Batman or Batman or Batwomen and men. Shia LaBeouf. And, and Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. I mean, somebody. Maybe recast, <laughs> maybe recast it and it's, it's somebody else. But have him Joseph leading the adventure. Yeah. Someone else. In the next movie, it'll be in the 60s. He'll have like a loser hippie son instead of a loser <laughs> greaser son. Leave me alone, Dad. I'm going to Woodstock. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's play the game and get into this here. Shall we play a game? So I think it's time for a round of the classic game, testing one, two, three, testing three, two, one, boom. Nuclear tests after the Trinity test, mostly used military code names picked to be meaningless so that the Soviets couldn't figure out what the test was about. Sometimes results in some pretty funny names for a test since it's pretty much random. And I think some of these funny names sound a lot like artifacts that Indiana Jones might be going after in some of his many adventures in the movies, in the television shows, in the books, in the video games, all that kind of fun stuff. In this game, I will say the name of either a nuclear test oh. or an artifact that Indiana Jones went after. And you have to tell me, whoever can buzz in with their name the quick, quickest, which it is. Okay. Uh, if you get it right, you get one point. If you get it wrong, it's negative one point. I've got 20 of these. We'll run through them very quickly. The winner gets one of these two playing cards that I have. I have a set of nuclear test playing cards. Woo-hoo. And one of them is nuclear test house today at the Nevada test site. So it's one of the houses. I think I rem- I've seen that house before. It yeah. was uh, stock it's, footage. It's now in Nebraska. Uh, it's near, I think, one of the universities in Nebraska. They moved it. And then this is atomic test in 3D is the card. And if you have 3D glasses, you can see a a house being blown up by one of the tests that I mentioned earlier. This was the Apple II test. You're playing for one of these. You get to pick one of them. Uh, Winner gets it. First question. Buster Jangle Dog. Nuclear test or an artifact? Alex. Nuclear test. You have chosen wisely. That is correct. Woo! That is a test from 1951. It was one of the ones that first used troop maneuvers in Operation Desert Rock. Hmm. So... First, got to start it off here. Next one is called Peace Pipe. Game. Artifact. You have chosen wisely. Correct. (laughs) Indiana Jones in the Young Indiana Jones series. Next one. Quick Silver Hearts. Alex. Nuclear. You have chosen wisely. Correct. 
These might not be that hard then. <laughs> it was a 1979 nuclear test. I thought Quicksilver Hearts would sound sort of crazy. The next one, Sandstone Zebra. Alex, artifact. He chose poorly. That is a nuclear test. Dang! From 1945, Sandstone Zebra. Minus point. Minus point. So you're back at one. Gabe's got one. Next one, Aqueduct Mule Shoe. Gabe, nuclear test. You have chosen wisely. It is a nuclear test. <laughs> 1989. The next one. Ottoman Seal. Gabe. Artifact. Correct. Dang. Emperor's Tomb. An artifact discovered by Indiana Jones in Istanbul. So Gabe's got three. Alex has one. Gotta catch up, buddy. I know. Next one is Peacock's Eye. Alex. Artifact. You have chosen wisely. Correct. Woo! Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, it was some sort of fancy diamond. It's, I mean, it sounds like it was. Uh, I thought I thought yeah. Peacock's Eye sounded a little bit like a nuclear test. Uh, the next one, <laughs> Invincible Ruby. Alex, artifact. You have chosen wisely. Ah, it is an artifact. Woo! Yes, Curse of the Got Invincible Ruby. Ivy King. Gabe, nuclear test. You have chosen wisely. Correct. 1952. Largest pure fission test. 500 kiloton. I, I knew that, of course. Yeah. yeah it's, it's you know, maybe it was like clearly, 500, clearly 600, something like that. It was yeah. either 58 or 59 or right. 57. Touchstone Nightingale. Alex. Nuclear test. You have chosen wisely. Ah, correct. Whew. This was a test from 1988. Holy Thorn. Gabe. Artifact. You have chosen wisely. Correct. From Indiana Jones and the Spear of Destiny. Jackal Headpiece. Alex, artifact. You have chosen wisely. Artifact it is. Oh, these are getting easy there now. <laughs> From the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Uh, so that's five to five. Here oh, we go. Man. Upsala Scroll. Alex, artifact. You have chosen wisely. Artifact it is. Anything with a scroll in there, I thought. <laughs> but some of the other ones kind of sound like that. The next one is Fishbowl Starfish. Gabe. Gabe. Nuclear test. You have chosen wise. It is. It was the <laughs> high altitude test that produced EMP effects. Huh. Ivory Moon. Gabe. Nuclear test. He chose poorly. Indiana Jones Ooh. in the Secret oh. of the Sphinx. Thank God I'm not the only one that got one wrong. That was a tough one. <laughs> so according to my math, which may or may not be right, it's just a game. Uh, Alex has six and Gabe has five. Next one. Sunbeam little fella. Alex, test. You have chosen wise. Yeah, the test. That was, a, that was an easier one. Um, that one was the last atmospheric test hmm. done at the Nevada test site. Omega book. Gabe. Artifact. You have chosen wisely. Correct. Oh, secret, I would have gone the other way. Secret of the Sphinx. Dragon Ring. Alex, artifact. You have chosen wisely. Oh, that was not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Indiana Jones and the Ghostly Riders. Either that next or Harry one, Potter thing or the something. The next one. <laughs> Fourth Nail. Gabe. Uh, nuclear test. He chose... 
Indiana Jones. Oh, no. The I think further adventures. I, of... I think that's the fourth nail in my coffin for uh, this game. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't think you can catch up here. The fourth nail was supposedly a nail from the crucifixion mm. stolen by a gypsy. That's I don't know why you don't know Where's that. Where's the fourth nail? The last one Phalanx Mini Jade. <laughs> Alex Test. You have chosen wisely. How did you know that? I don't know. <laughs> I thought that was going to be an artifact. Phalanx Mini Jade. Yeah. Uh, 1983 nuclear test. So, Alex, you get to pick your card. Congratulations. Can, can, enjoy your last time on this show. I'm not, lo- I'm not, I'm not allowing you We're going anymore. back to the other Alex now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So that was... I, I think, think I'm going to take the uh, the 3D blown away by the blast. Do oh, I need glasses for these? I have show? some here from, yeah. the, uh, from something, from some movie, so you can check them out. Excellent. All right. Congratulations. Thank you. James all right, so let's wrap this up here. Uh, this episode has gone on a little bit longer, our normal mini nuke, but there's a lot to talk about, even though this is just one or two scenes. Yeah, sorry for talking so much, guys. Oh, this, you, you said good words. You had, the, you had the best words. So the best <laughs> words of any, Alex. So the questions I have here, we've already kind of gone a little bit about this. Parking lot movie discussions. Say you were with me opening night when we watched this movie. And we're sitting in the parking lot before we go our separate ways. And we're talking about what we liked and disliked about the movie. Nukes and aliens. Do you think they're too weird for an Indiana Jones movie? Or is it fit? Because people have those complaints. Uh, I want to hear what you guys think about that question. Um, I would say aliens too weird for Indiana Jones, but nukes not too weird. If there was like a different thing besides aliens being the big reveal... I think that scene could have fit perfectly, him evading like the commies, as mm-hmm. long as they were after like some other kind of artifact instead of an alien skull made out of quartz that attracted magnets and no one really knew, oh, uh, is this actually Spaceman or is this an interdimension <laughs> thing going on? It was just, it was too convoluted. It's just, it was just too weird for me. So my parking lot uh, discussion would be the hype was really high and the payoff was very low. Mm. So my, I mean, my thing is, yeah, there is that connection. There's these theories about aliens coming back, but all the other movies seem to be grounded in antiquity, right? And this one, this is more like sci-fi, and it just it seemed out of place. It just seemed, mm. yes, I don't mind the fact that it was fantastical. I mind the fact that it was fantastical, but not like rooted in ancient mythology. That you know, that kind of thing. That's what really got me about the alien plot. I think it's it's funny that this was before ancient aliens. Because Ancient Aliens is criticized for using the, like basically conspiracy theories about what could explain why this technology existed so long ago and then disappeared and all that stuff. It is grounded in what some people would say is archaeology, but it's bad archaeology. It's a it's a type of understanding of like this is silly that this turned out to be real and that it made all of that nonsense from Ancient Aliens and turned the History Channel into the state that it's in today, it basically said, all right, well, in this world of Indiana Jones, all that stuff is real. I also don't think why Indiana Jones doesn't have a mental breakdown because he now discovered that Jesus Christ is a real person who has powers and is actually God. He firmly understands that because he's seen a 700-year-old knight surviving because of the the Last Supper's cup, the chalice. He knows that's a real thing. In, in this world. He's seen the power of the Ark of the Covenant. He knows that there's some sort of mystical ability and power there. He's also seen um, people rip someone's heart out and they continue to survive for and a brain while. Control, yeah. And brain control. He knows these things exist, but he's just living life like an archaeology teacher. People that would see all these things would Yeah, have some you sort think you'd have some sort of like life epiphany and go like 
go run like a small bar out in the Caribbean to like yeah. Yeah, enjoy your life. He, he's he's acting like <laughs> he, none of these things have ever mattered to him. I think the other cool thing is that I this movie is really good about transitioning the villains from Nazis. Uh, I think another part of it too was after Steven Spielberg made Schindler's List, he said that he doesn't really want to do another silly Nazi villain, so he moved to what fit the time and place that Indy would be if for some way they could do an Indiana Jones movie, say the theory is right that he does able to survive for as long as they can, and the movie was made today, 2018, what would the villain be? Uh, that's a great question. Probably, some, I think, a terrorist type thing. Maybe, maybe you know, like the uh, ISIS is in Syria trying to, like, destroy the uh, artifacts there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, uh, Mr. Spielberg, if you're out there, you know, I, I've got, I might be able to write a script for that. First he tries to protect the artifacts. Then he gets involved in some other, some sort of other mystical yeah. element to it. I mean, I hate to get too PC, but they couldn't do an ISIS or Middle Eastern terrorist group, so it would probably be an Eastern European terrorist group doing something. So, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, the Russians are back, right? So we're yeah, worried about the no, Russians I, again. I agree. The, like, the, the theme seems to be like generic Eastern European country, right. like rogue general. Could very, he, right. yeah, Could exactly. he do North Korea? Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone can kick North Korea. There's like a lot of stories of, of you know, famous folklore in North Korea about sacred mountains where apparently North Korea was founded from and that there's unicorns there and all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, what if like you Kim Jong-un had like a ancient wind that like, yeah. So what if, what if he him, goes right. and finds an actual unicorn and he has to protect it from North Korea that wants to use that to launch ICBMs? And that's the straight-to-TV Indiana Jones? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> all right. Steven Spielberg, don't worry about yeah. that one. That one, you can have that one, uh, no problem. Let's rate this movie. We always have a consistent one to five rating system, one being the lowest, five being the best. But we also like to tailor things because we get super critical about it. We should be critical about our, our rating system. So I think one to five inches of lead lining <laughs> on your refrigerator. One inch, probably better than nothing. You know, it's better than having like a little mini fridge yeah. and you can't really get into it. But five inches would be your best you know, survival chance. Right. Alex, when you start us off as the guest here, okay. one to five inches of lead mining. Please. All right. I will give it a hmm, 2.5 inch lead um, lined refrigerator. It was, it's not as good as my favorite Indiana Jones, which is Last Crusade. I, if I had to give an order, it's Last Crusade, then Raiders of Lost Ark. And that's a toss up between Temple of Doom and this one. Mm. But I think Temple of Doom takes the cake because this one just seems like a let's get the whole old cast together. Let's let's just put them into the quirky things. And it was like the first half of the movie was definitely um, felt like old indie, like old right. indie. It's been 19 years. And it was like, oh, man, this is great. This is great. It's just it's just felt forced to me, just very forced. And the ending just. I hated it. So, and the and the CGI gophers and monkeys. So, yeah, two two point five inches. Two point five, Gabe. Uh, yeah, if I had to rate it, I'd say three point five. Um, despite some of the failings in terms of the alien plot, and I just didn't think they kind of they really only went to South America. Mm. I thought there was enough in there to be of interest. Um, you know, it, it certainly it had enough. Uh, Spielberg movie magic in it to make it watchable and enjoyable for me, but I, I really I thought it was kind of a squandered opportunity to to do something great. But there was enough in there for for me to get excited about. How about you? How about you, Tim? Three point two five. I'm gonna get even oh, further. Wow. That's on my very point super system. critical of you because I think it's it's a fine movie. It's you know better than average movie. I, I would watch it again. 
maybe not tomorrow, but in a couple years, I'd watch it again. There's enough fun Indiana Jones wit and all of his little jokes. My favorite joke was the Mutt and Marion were talking about what's his what's Indy's plan, and it's like, oh, in Marion's like, he doesn't come up with anything. He just tries to figure it out. And all of a sudden, through the back window of the car, he puts a rocket launcher, like an RPG, <laughs> going right through and says, hey, you want to, you better close your ears. That was a funny little joke there, and there's a bunch of things that are like that that I it fits very well. It adds the nuclear dimension. I, I've been highlighting this or previewing this earlier. I like the fact that that stuff's in there. The Cold War side, I think Indiana Jones would be totally involved in this. They connect academia to Red Scare, the, the nuclear fears. All those things kind of fit together, and it makes sense that Indiana Jones would comment on things like that. You know, the, the weapon of the day in all the other Indiana Jones movies was the Nazis wanted to get this weapon to do X, Y, or Z. I mean, it makes sense that the Soviets would try to go after some sort of paranormal thing to counter the U.S.'s best weapon, which was the atomic bomb. I think all that stuff fits together. It's an execution problem, which why it remains 3.25, but that's still better than how I remember this movie. When I first saw this movie, I would have given it a 2. I think 3.25, <laughs> it's aged a little bit better. Uh, it's it's a, f a finer wine, and it's aged as well as Indiana Jones has. So normally at the end of these episodes, we like to recommend things to our listeners if they like this movie, or maybe they don't like the movie, but they like the subject matter that it discusses for them to check this out moving forward. I have three things to recommend. First, the 1989 TV movie, Nightbreaker. It stars Martin Sheen and his son Emilio in flashbacks uh, present day, though they play the same character at different points in time, and they're a scientist that was involved in the nuclear testing program that exposed soldiers to experiments with nuclear testing. And when he's confronted by a soldier who later develops cancer and is paying him a visit, he starts to reflect on what his role was in that particular scenario. So I think that's a really cool movie if you like nuclear testing and, and how to survive these things or not survive these things. Second, a book uh, called Doom Towns, The People and Landscapes of Atomic Testing, A Graphic History by Andrew Kirk. Uh, I have a copy of it over here that I've, I think I showed them, uh, our, our fellow podcasters here earlier. It's a it's a graphic novel, so it's a comic book style, and it shows the Trinity Test and the testing series and people who lived downwind in fact um, of radiation on their lives. I think it's a great accessible way to look at these issues. Uh, I would, and they talk all about doomed towns and survival towns and things like that. And finally, go on YouTube. Go to the Lawrence Livermore National Lab page, and you can watch these recently declassified footage of nuclear tests. They have all kinds. The latest batch was released in December of 2017. You know, high def in the sense that it's the best quality from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Go through those, and you can see how large atomic tests were when they were atmospheric, uh, and you can kind of see... If we ever get back to a world where atomic testing happens again, it's most likely not going to be above ground. North Korea has threatened to test a bomb in the in the South Pacific uh, atmospheric. So if we see another one, that may be where it comes from. Gabe, Alex, do you guys have anything to recommend? Uh, not really. Just, I mean... I Go think, see another Indiana yeah, Jones. Yeah, I think you can find young Indiana Jones, which not many people haven't seen from like the 90s or whatever. You watch so. some of that stuff? Yeah, every once in a while, and then it gets a little old and... Yeah, but it's okay. I mean, it's like cool seeing him do adventures in like Cairo and stuff in the twenties. So, any other good Harrison Ford movies about pilots and airplanes and things like no. that? <laughs> well, other other than Star yeah, Wars, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm I'm good. Nothing to recommend. Well, if you have come up with anything, we'll add it to the show page later on. Alex, Gabe, thanks so much for coming on. Gabe, uh, you're the co-host here, so you just have to be here now. 
uh, now that Joel, <laughs> now that Joel, hopefully he's okay. I know he's still suffering from seeing into the eyes of the skull. Uh, but Alex, I appreciate you coming on here. Hope hey, you had no fun. sweat. Yeah, I had a great time. This was uh, fun. I like it. Let's maybe do it again. Yeah, with a better movie, maybe. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, two point two point five is like right in the middle, so it's a you know, sure. it's one thumb up, one thumb down. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Gabe, where can they go? You go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. You can also find us on Twitter, along with some other people who tweet, at Nuclear Podcast. And email supercriticalpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the program, uh, please go on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Give us a five-star review. Subscribe uh, or a four-star. You know, I'm okay with that, too. Uh, But this really helps to grow the show. We appreciate it. We always like listening to people's uh, feedback and, and reading about that stuff. Thanks very much for those that have done that. And until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And Alex number five. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.